Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today I am joined by Dr. Nikki M. Taylor, who is a professor of history at Howard University. She specializes in 19th century African American history. Her subspecialties are in urban African American women and intellectual history. She has written Four books. Her first book, Frontiers of Freedom, Cincinnati's Black Community, 1802-1868, uses the backdrop of one of the 19th century's most racist American cities to chart the emergence of a very conscious, conscientious Black community. Her second book, America's First Black Socialist, The Radical Life of Peter H. Clark, is a political an intellectual biography of one of the foremost African-American activists, intellectuals, orators, and politicians in the 19th century. Her third book, Drive Toward Madness, The Fugitive Slave, Margaret Garner, and the Tragedy on the Ohio. It was a monograph and a biography of Margaret Garner, who is an enslaved wife and mother who, along with her entire family, escaped from slavery in northern Kentucky in 1856. Her fourth book, which we are discussing today, Brooding Over Bloody Revenge and Slave Women's Lethal Resistance, was recently released with Cambridge University Press. Professor Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Katrina. I'm very honored and happy to share this book with your your listeners. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? So Brooding Over Bloody Revenge is about enslaved women who used lethal force to resist slavery. And it's a little bit more than that. It's centered around their ideas about what justice was. And so um, it's a collection of seven case studies, although each case study also mentions a larger context of you know, other women. So it's a lot of stories in the book. It's not just the seven, but it also, each chapter focuses on a different era, a different region, and a different weapon used to uh, murder their enslavers. So Nikki, why did you select enslaved women who executed their slave owners as your topic, which I loved, by the way? How did you decide on this topic? Well, it started in graduate school when I was learning about the uh, consensus 
among uh, scholars of Black women's history. And the consensus states that uh, Black women tended to use softer, my, my phrase, softer forms of resistance, everyday resistance, like talking back, um, refusing to work or pretending to be pregnant, uh, pretending to be sick. And so I said, well, wait a minute, this is diametrically opposed to how I am as a Black woman, how I entered the world and the workplace. And it's also diametrically opposed to every other Black woman I know. Like we are fighters, we're gritty, we don't take a lot for the most part. And, and so it just wasn't making sense to me. And so I read a book that changed my whole life and understanding. And that book was Celia, a Slave by Melvin McLaurin. And although he is a male, he really captured um, a lot of things that I tried to also do with these case studies. And so he was my inspiration in terms of how to shape the book. And so, you know, hopefully, um, you know, the book, kind of uh, pays homage to him. And, and so uh, hopefully other people will think it does as well. It does. I can truly say that it does. And your opening scene with Charlotte was so powerful. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's just in your mind as to what was happening during that time. And so I have to say, it just, it blew me away from the start as I was reading, and I just couldn't put the book down, um, and I had to go back to it. I had to go back to it a few times, because there were certain scenes where it was like, oh, wow, did they really do that? And then it was like, you know, just the planning that went into it, I was like, gotta repeat that section again. Uh, it was just great. So I wanted to ask you, you know, the title. First off, it's awesome, brooding over bloody revenge. And then, you know, as I was reading, it comes from the case of Jane Williams. So can you speak about how you selected the title of the book? Well, um, I when I was reading about Jane Williams and one of her jailers who um, was, you know, took her to the uh, local jail, said that he thought she was brooding over bloody revenge and it was so powerful and I actually had to look up the word brooding and I said wow this is it and so when I was looking for publishers not everybody um, was that all that happy with the title and I think even Cambridge like at first gave me a little pushback because you know everything <clears throat> has to be a certain way in order to really be attractive to the audience that we aimed it at, which is regular everyday people. And so they came back and said, no, we actually like the title. And that was a big relief because I think I would have gone to the grave fighting for that title because it's just so powerful. And I usually, in all of my books, except for the second, I usually try to use phrases from the actual primary sources for the title so that it, it, you know, it's consistent with how people at that time spoke or how they saw things. And so that's why that I chose that title. It's awesome. And I really appreciate it, as I'm sure other readers will as well. Um, it's great. 
Thank you. Now, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, as you, these women, and you discuss them, you discuss, you know, how black women would have been invisible in the record had it not been for their resistance. Can you speak about this? Yeah, um, because, thank you. That's a really brilliant question, actually. Um, What we assume as scholars of 19th century history is that, uh, and what is actually a reality, is that the voices of Black women are very muted in the archive. And what I mean by that is that because they were Black and because they were Black women, um, you know, people didn't tend to record their words verbatim or if at all. Uh, they didn't write. They, some, many of them didn't read. And so it's really hard to find their actual voices in the historical archive. And so when I embarked on this topic, I said, wow, this is going to be almost impossible to find their voices because preserving and writing and using Black women's voices is very important to me as a scholar of Black women's history. And so um, I initially thought I would have the same difficulties that my students have when they're trying to select a paper topic on Black women's history in the age of slavery. And so um, I was really surprised by how vocal these women are in the archive. And so what I mean by that is that you usually find close to nothing, right? Or always what white people thought about them or said about them, or they just exist in the archive as a number on the slave census or a name in a diary of an enslaver. But here, these women's voices are actually there. And the irony, Katrina, is this. So while these women's voices are in the archive, in their exact words, many in almost all of the cases, the people who are harder to, to recover are the enslavers that they murdered. So, and what I concluded is these people would have, you know, gone and, you know, died and nobody would have ever known about them had, were it not for the resistance of the women who killed them. And so that's pretty ironic because here we usually expect enslavers' voices to be all throughout the record, but it's just the opposite with the case of enslaved women who use lethal force. So I thought that was like, you know, a little, um, you know, it, it was kind of funny in a way because they made history, the enslavers made history because of what happened to them. Right. It is. It is. I mean, it, it's turned everything on its head. You know, the actual enslavers, they're more invisible versus actually the enslaved, which is so powerful because I understand how difficult it is to do black women's history in the age of slavery. It is tough finding those sources. Um, so this is like, it is amazing what you have done. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So what type of sources did you have? You know, did you have any challenges that you faced as you were going through the researching and writing process? There were, there was a lot of sources and the sources that I used primarily were uh, the coroner's inquest records in addition to the trial transcripts from the Oyer and Terminal Terminal Courts, and that's just this specific type of court, it means to hear and determine. 
And, um, and also I, you know, use corroborating evidence from newspapers and journals of the House of Burgesses. And so those were the primary sources. Of course, in order to set the context, I had to use additional sources like tax records and things like that. And so, um, you know, it just really was, um, you know, really rich. And I think that for some future graduate student, they would find a lot of different stories. In fact, I have a student that I'm working with who's working on this topic, and, and she found even more than, than I did um, for the Deep South. So, so there's no lack of sources. It's just that we haven't thought about them. And, and then, you know, I think there's something with the discipline, too, especially among scholars of Black women. We're very conscientious about how we portray uh, Black women, even historically. I think so. People are reluctant to write a book like this is, is all I can, because I'm sure scholars have come across a lot of these records in the archives before, but just decided against it. Um, and I mentioned some of that in my footnotes. Right. I can, I see the double side of that corn as to, you know, how the importance of how black women are portrayed historically and contemporarily. Um, so I can see, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. Now, as you were writing, was there as you were writing the book, because it, it reads like a, you know, like one of those true crime <laughs> novels. Yes. And it's like, yes. you were like, you were Detective Nikki Taylor as you're uncovering all of these, you know, crimes and you're putting together them piece by piece and case by case. And so, you know, I was wondering, you know, is there anyone whose work inspired you to write um, the book in this manner because it is just so masterfully done that you don't want to put it down. Wow, thank you for that, Katrina. I think, um, well, you know, so here's something I never tell people. I wanted to be a writer, a fiction writer, a novelist, and uh, it just didn't work out. I, I, I kind of knew I needed to eat and I wasn't sure I could could do that off of, you know, the talent that I had at 22. So I decided to go and get a PhD in history so that I could tell stories, true, truthful stories. But, you know, those passions never went away. So I experimented with this format with the Driven Toward Madness, the, the third book that you mentioned. And so, and it's something that historians don't usually do. So for your listeners, I'll, I'll just give them a little snapshot. So I entered the, each chapter, because remember, each chapter is about a different woman. I enter each chapter with something that just grabs your attention. And then I go backwards from there to explain what happened. And so you're caught, Katrina, you can attest to this, from the first paragraph of the, each chapter. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I learned that from novelists. So they do that. And historians have been taught not to do that. You write in a clear way. You give everybody what it is. But that can be a little boring. You know, I mean, it's boring for me. And so um, so this was this is how I made it more interesting and more, um, you know, uh, cap captivating uh, for the reader who may not be immersed or as well versed in 
historical devices. So it's just a little device. And um, that's, that's what it is, I think, that, that is making you have such a positive response. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's captivating. It's just, you know, it's, it is many things. And my listeners, you really want to get this book. That's all I can say. Uh, and we'll get to that towards the end. But I want to ask you now, there is a theory that you talk about that's really important. And I think so my listeners can understand it. The Black feminine, Feminist Practice of Justice. Can you explain what this important theory means for um, the listeners? Thank you. And I'm glad you mentioned that. So, you know, I, you know, am a big fan of Black feminist theory. It informs most of my books. And so... Um, this, I, I realized that it was very necessary because unfortunately, Katrina, with Black women are dogged by an age-old stereotype of the angry Black woman. And so I had a family member say to me, aren't you afraid that you're just going to replicate uh, or reinforce this idea that Black women are impulsive, enraged all the time, unjustifiably so? And, and angry, and I said, oh, good Lord, what, oh my God, <laughs> no way will I ever do that. So I had to think about that critique and think about how to better frame this in a way that helps people understand. And so I looked at uh, many of the stories that I had gathered in, in the course of the research, and I realized at the heart of them, these women were reacting to injustice. And, and so, so what does this mean? It means that they had a philosophy about what justice was and that they were not receiving justice, that their owners were unjust. And I said, oh my God, so what about, wait a minute. So black women here, enslaved black women, these resistors are also intellectuals of sorts. We, we never think about enslaved people as intellectuals, but perhaps we, we need to start because they had a very clear concept of justice that was, you know, it made me re-question my own concept of justice. I said, wait a minute, do I even have a philosophy of justice? But they did. So it started with having a philosophy about what justice is and what it isn't. And then they put it into practice. So I did that because by doing so, you can humanize these women. And it also prevents readers who might not understand, to, it, it helps them to understand that Black women are not just angry, uh, impulsive, and all of that. So I go step by step. They're not angry Black women because they're not impulsive. They, they plan these um, murders over the course of many weeks, months, even years. So very, very thoughtful. A lot of thought went into this. Um, not only that, um, they had tried other steps and other types of resistance before they resorted to lethal force. So in fact, I argued that lethal force was their last best option. So they tried all the everyday forms of resistance first. And when that wasn't working and the injustice was continuing and compounding, then that's when they resorted to this. 
Um, I also talked about how they, um, you know, were, were very clear and organized with their planning. So that's another thing that prevents or, or, or kind of challenges this idea that they were impulsive and just haphazard. And so really that frame, that black, black feminist practice of justice is a theoretical framework so that we don't fall into the old trap of just being, you know, reducing them to the angry black woman trope, which is problematic and needs to be completely obliterated. And these women show that that trope, that stereotype has no place in describing these women's actions. I All I can say is it is a much welcome change that needs to be done. And you're right that angry black woman stereotype, it is something that still to this day continues to follow black women, both historically and contemporarily. And so, you know, the work that you did and that you've done in this book hopefully will go, you know, and help people to reconceptualize the ways in which they think about black women and their actions. Um, that it's not, it's very methodical, that there is not this idea that they're just going out there and saying, I want to get this done. No, there's actual careful planning that goes into this and that they do have their own philosophy of justice. Um, and that's very, very important. So what I want to do now is delve into some of the cases um, and talk a little bit about them. So, and a good example of that methodical planning that you mentioned a few moments ago goes to Phyllis and Phoebe. Um, can you speak a little bit about their very well thought out plan that they concocted um, during that time? Yeah, they, these women are, they have the patience of, you know, like of gods or something, you know, because they, it, it was years that they uh, resisted their their enslaver, uh, Captain uh, Codman in uh, a, a city just outside of Boston in the colonial age. And so, you know, and other scholars have written about it, but they always position Mark, which is one of their co-conspirators, they position Mark as the architect. So again, this is patriarchy in the profession of history, uh, where, whereby people cannot imagine that it was the black women who were the architects of this plot. Mark said that they were, okay? So anyway, the three of them, uh, over the course of years, they tried several things to get rid of Captain Codman. Um, they tried to burn him up, burn up all of his property, and they did. They succeeded. But he, and they thought by doing that, he would sell them. So again, he, they just want to be sold, okay? And so then whatever uh, the abuse, you'll read about it in the book, uh, it, con it, it continued. So they said, okay, we got to get rid of him. And I'm just paraphrasing. So over the course of several years, they murdered him piecemeal. They murdered him a little each day. They were his cooks. And so they were responsible for feeding him his food, his snacks, his tea, this uh, medicinal thing he did for likely asthma that he took as an infusion. And so everything he 
ate, they poisoned, and they used a variety of poisons, which really shows they, they were really well-versed. I mean, I was struck by how well-versed. They were like, no, don't use this. It makes your body, your limbs swell. Don't use that because it, people will realize that he's been poisoned. So they murdered him little by little because they didn't want to alert officials that he had been poisoned. So all of his neighbors and people around him, including his children, his adult children who lived with him, Katrina, they all thought he just had stomach issues because, you know, they, they did it and they were so patient and they, they resisted the urge to just put a whole bunch of poison in his food at once. And they used a variety of poisons from rat poison, which at the time the brand name was Rat's Bane. They used uh, arsenic. They used lead. You know, like now we know lead poisoning is, is really a problem in our communities and society. And so they understood hundreds of years before we did that lead could, you know, kill you and, and just mess you up. And so they used that. And they even uh, used a raw cashews. Who knew that raw cashews are fatal if ingested? Like I, I learned that and I said, hey, wait a minute, I have a PhD. How are these, how do they know this? And so, and then when anybody got too tempted, they would say, oh, wait a minute, you know, don't, your hand is too heavy. You're putting in too much. And so they finally succeeded in killing him. And when they killed him, they're dancing, they're laughing, they're having fun with each other, uh, like uh, making a mockery of how he doubled over with pain he was. These women are completely happy to get rid of Doc, um, sorry, not Dr. Captain Codman. And so it's just really a rich story. Their personalities come through. And um, it's, it's a very colorful story, as are many of the others that follow that. That's the very first chapter. It was. And it was like, oh, wow, the careful planning and the thought. And as you said, they had so much knowledge about things that could potentially kill you. I was right there with you. I had no idea that uncooked cashews could actually kill you. I was like, oh, wow. I know. I was like, that's a good one right there. But they had all this knowledge. So it also gets rid of this stereotype of enslaved women being uneducated. They knew their environment. They knew what worked and what did not work because they had access to it and they were dealing with it day by day. Um, the lengths at which they went to to ensure that, you know, for the most part, things were going well. And they wanted to make sure that what they were doing, it wasn't discovered. You know, it's like, we can't they didn't want to get caught too early on. It's like, no, this can't happen. And this is the colonial era. That's what, that's what's so mind-boggling. And what's great that I appreciate it, this is in Massachusetts, which is, you know, somewhere where you think of, oh, yeah, that's, you know, the so-called benign institution of slavery. It's like you're flipping that on, you're flipping it on its head, you know, and that's important because, yeah, slavery existed in the North as well. And these are the experiences of these women. And I want my listeners to understand as you're reading this book that 
the lengths at which these women go through, that shows you that there was no benign institution for them to actually want to go to the lengths that they did. This was not, it's, it's more than that. It's not just them being the angry black woman saying, no, no, this was methodical. This was careful planning, but you have to understand the context in which all of that was happening and why they chose what they did. They didn't have any other options at that point. Um, which I think is really important um, to talk about. And, you know, I think about Anne, Phyllis, and Lucy, you know, and Henry Armand, and what you did in that chapter, it was so well done because it really helped reconceptualize, you know, what the term slave revolt meant. Um, Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, um, about the chapter or or about what slave revolt meant. What slave revolt meant, tying it into like how that's connected to the chapter, because it's so important, because that's a term that has normally been the purview for enslaved males. Yes, Um, yes, 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 that's exactly it. And, you know, it's really hard. Very few scholars actually have a definition. I think we're all working with Abstackers and maybe uh, Genovese's, but the inspiration for complicating slave revolt, as has been accepted by the consensus, by the mainstream historians who won all the book prizes, um, Rebecca Hall. And this woman has written a beautifully brilliant article called not killing me softly african-american women slave revolts and historical constructions of racialized gender and when i say that that article resonated with me um she has recently written a, a very gripping graphic novel as well called wake so but what she does she says that the slave revolt the term assumes that women didn't lead or substantive substantively participate in them. And we all know that to be true. Like, I mean, I love Nat Turner and and VC and and even Gabriel, but like, where are the women in the the historians who have written about these with the exception of Vanessa Holden? You you know, you just get this idea that women were peripheral or that even we just happen to be in the yard when, you know, the other, uh, resistors, the male uh, resistors came through and we actually like, you know, contained one of the uh, white people. Uh, that's Nat Turner's revolt I'm referring to. But I'm like, wait a minute here. Again, uh, Katrina, very inconsistent with all that I knew about 20th century women, especially women in the Black Panther Party and etc. And I said, I wonder if maybe we just need to complicate the concept of revolt in order to see women more clearly because we all know that they're there and they actually have the same uh determination as many of the enslaved men but but where are they so what i realized by doing this research is that women revolted differently okay so getting back to rebecca hall she defines revolt as and i'm going to read this any violent coordinated act of resistance that kills or attempts to kill slave owners or their agents. 
Okay, so that's a broader term, but that plus Genovese's concept of simple revolt, which is waged against unbearable exploitation or injustice, I put those together and that's this is how you're able to see women. Women in my book are, are who participate in revolt. It's organized, coordinated, violent acts of resistance that are motivated by injustice. So that's what this is. So we broaden the lens. So there we see more women like uh, uh, Annis and, uh, uh, and company in colonial North Carolina. You're able to see them. This is, this is, that's what they're doing when they kill uh, Henry Ormond, their enslaver. And so, um, you know, I think that was also what happened with Nellie and company and her extended family, um, her children and grandchildren. And so um, if we broaden that, then it doesn't have to mean let's march on the Capitol and capture Charleston or capture Richmond and then go get the governor. It doesn't have to be as, um, you know, uh, maybe visible as that. A simple revolt that uh, uh, Genovese talks about and Rebecca Hall kind of talks about, it's happening in the bedrooms. And in the kitchens, as Vanessa Holden contends, it's happening inside the homes against their enslavers. And so once I, I kind of broaden that definition and merge those two, oh my goodness, there are so many that uh, some, some of the stories are, are secondary to the chapters. Like there are other women within each chapter that I discuss that also committed, uh, or sorry, uh, participated in or organized slave revolt. And so that that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to also challenge young scholars like you to go out and, and do more research on this because we completely are onto something new if we just start start to look at things differently. I agree. And that you did, you did it so well. We have so much, you know, work that we need to do to keep pushing things forward. And you've kind of helped guide us and lead the way for us to do that. So now we have to pick it up and take it um, and work with it. And you gave us so many avenues to do that from the Black feminist practice of justice to reconceptualize what slave revolts were. So I want to say thank you for that. Um, it is much appreciated as a scholar. Um, now I have to shift to one of my favorite, 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 favorite people in the book, Rose Butler. She, she is like, she stood out in my mind so much and I had to keep going back a couple of times because it's like did she really do that how did she do that wow she has mad skills to get this done but everything that she was doing was like so plausible when you think about it in the scheme of things it wasn't that you know in our minds it's like oh wow she accomplished something that was really amazing and that should not be accomplished but she was just like okay I can get this done and this is how I'm going to do it so without spoiling too many details for listeners because they have to read about her they have to read about her can you speak about who she was who she was yeah uh Rose Butler is it is she's trying out to be everybody's favorite character 
she was enslaved um, at the in the last stages of slavery in New York. So she is what uh, she benefited from being born after the date of the gradual uh, abolition act of New York. And so she her she was you know we call her a term slave um, in history. Scholars call her a term slave. She had a date by which she was going to be free by New York law. And so I, I don't know if she was aware of that. I don't know if she knew um, that her term was limited, but she acted out in ways that were very um, problematic for her enslavers. Rose Butler in New York City was pretending to go to Bible study um, but instead, she'd go to uh, the seediest part of New York City and dance, party, drink into the wee hours of the morning. Uh, she went on party boats. Um, she bought, uh, with money that she uh, stole from her enslavers, uh, she purchased people uh, extravagant gifts with those with that money. And so she basically... Um, you know, was, was, you know, a typical a modern day uh, black woman who we use the term is living her best life. Rose Butler was living her best life. And so that's what makes it really kind of colorful and even comical in a way is that she was doing this uh, on the dime and without the knowledge of her enslavers. And then when she was within their home, she was sulking. She was sullen. She didn't want to do the work that they were assigning her to. And in her mind, she said they were working her nonstop and she never liked her uh, mistress. She ne They never got along. And so Rose Butler takes uh, justice in her own hands and decides to not only put, you know, uh, uh, commit arson, but to, she did it with her, with help unknown help, other conspirators, three times, three times she burned these people out. And so um, that's what makes her really colorful is her personality, her defiance, um, her willingness to enjoy her life. Stephanie Camp, another uh, scholar, uh, a late scholar, uh, talked about, you know, this type of resistance where you resist in your bodily pleasures that's what that's what Rose Butler was doing for sure. And so I hope the listeners, when they read it, they'll find her as colorful as you and I, Katrina. Oh, yes. I mean, Nikki, it's like Rose Butler. And you're right. You know, it goes right to the heart. This I was going to go to next, you know, with Stephanie Camp's um, bodily resistance. She did. I mean, she did that so masterfully and on her enslaver's dime. And I just thought it was so, so great that she had this very plausible excuse as to where she was at. I'm going to Bible study. Who's going to say no to that? Who's going to say no to your enslaved member actually going to learn about Jesus or their version of Jesus that will tell them that you must obey? Who's going to say no to that? Emosa. No, she's taking carriage rides. She's going party boats. She's having a blast. But that was her time. And that is what she needed. And she wanted control of her body to say, okay, I'm going to do 
what I want to do. This is my body. I need to exert some control over my life. She is listeners. There are many things that you will see in this book and read in this book, but she is one that you must read. When you read about her experiences, you're going to be like, oh, wow. Uh, That's all I can say. So this is yet another reason to pick up a copy of this book. Um, And so from Rose Butler, I want to shift to kind of, you know, Lucy's case um, with Maria Daltrey, because it kind of gets also to this idea about why these women did what they did. And I was thinking about the statement that you wrote that she made to the reporter that the murder had been a matter of life or death and that she killed Dari before she could kill her. Can you kind of talk about what that meant? She knew that, you know, it's either me or her. This is what it comes down to. Uh, And you know, I'm not ready to die yet. Yeah. Now, you know, just to give the listeners a little context, um, you know, and, and maybe I'm giving too much. This woman was transported across the nation. To, this is like her at least second major region, or actually the third major region she had lived in. Um, and so she had recently Uh, arrived in Galveston, Texas, right in the antebellum period, the last decade before the Civil War. And she was considered old. And, and, And she was probably already like disgusted. Whatever circumstances had led her to be transported, it could have been resistance, uh, Katrina. I could not tried and tried and tried to find uh, what, you know, where she originated. Uh, especially the immediate origins, which was Georgia, but I wasn't able to to really find that. But she may have been transported for resistance because that was a typical way that enslavers got rid of people who had used lethal force or almost lethal force previously as they sold them and transported them out of the, the region. And so she arrives in Galveston. She's probably upset. She probably left children, maybe of other friends and loved ones. And she's at in the uh, you know elderly stages of her life in her 50s. Um, and somebody has purchased her. And not only have, have they purchased her and taken her away from her community, but they had the nerve, Katrina, they, they had the nerve to try to work her like she was, you know, a cotton slave or something. And she wasn't about that life, okay? They were working, and they tried to master her. These are new enslavers, new to the game. She's their first enslaved person, the only one they ever owned. And they probably didn't understand mastery and how do you go about getting somebody to do the work. So they used a lot of violence, a lot of force, probably a lot of name calling. And she resisted. This was not what she was about at that time in her life. And so um, so that resistance to a very oppressive new owner, new enslaver who is trying her best to try to exhibit and exert mastery over, over her is what led her to basically... Um, 
you know, plot revenge. And she told people that's what she was going to do. And so, yeah, um, I think, you know, that's what she meant. They were very, very abusive to her. And, um, and she had resisted in other ways, as evidenced by her personal history uh, in Galveston with, those, with the Daltrey family. She had resisted several times, like in quick succession, upon their purchase of her. And so, um, you know, she is the one in the book who's different from the others in that uh, not her age is what makes her different. It's the fact that she basically uses silence in the court uh, in ways that the other women, you know, in the court and also on the gallows and things like that. And so the silence is instructive and I kind of, you know, play that out for the, for the readers of the book. And so um, in that way, she's a little angular to the other women in the book. That she was. And the things that, as you said, she had been transported three times, you know, and to have that level of abuse going on, you know, it was coming down to that me or her option. Um, that was right there. Exactly. And, and, and as, like I said, the new um, enslavers, those new to it, were very problematic as I kind of lay out. And I'm, I was hoping the reader would draw the same conclusion. But the new owners, because clothes owners are, are, you know, the people who enslaved her are also new to the game. And they don't, it's like they didn't understand how to master or how to be an enslaver in a way. And so they just did the most, as the young people would say. They did the most. They did it too fast and too brutally. And this is the consequence. And so um, so, so Lucy and also Chloe are, are, are enslaved to these people who don't really understand um, you know, just the, the principles of, of being an enslaver, you know, you can't brutalize somebody and strip them of humani- humanity endlessly unless you were willing to pay a price and they paid uh, that price. That they did. And so that, you know, that's what I want to speak with you about for a little bit, you know, this idea of, and you do this so masterfully in it, of talking about the smaller slaveholders, the newer slaveholders versus those large plantation owners. And what, you know, you're able to do is challenge the idea that the enslaved people living in these smaller units had a, you know, quote, better experience than those living on the large plantations. Because that's what, you know, it's supposed to have like that family feel that's going on you know on the smaller units it's more benign it's you know it's not as bad obviously you take that notion and you turn it on its head it's you know for these women to go to the lengths that they do they're not living on this experience that is benign no it's pretty it's pretty bad for them it's awful yeah i agree so i did this first katrina with the driven toward madness because you know i'm from ohio and a lot of the people in you know the kentucky area you know they hold on to this idea well we were not as brutal to our enslaved people we were not as uh, inhumane 
And so I kind of turn it on its head in that book. So I'm already a big fan of disrupting set pieces. So set ideas about what slavery is and isn't and who were the humane owners, which there is no such thing versus who were the inhumane ones, right? And so what what I found is that this is what made made it so intolerable for women and people enslaved to these smaller uh, enslavers, small slaveholders, it's this. So we have this strict dichotomy in our head. My students have it. I know I had it until I was educated that there's field slavery and there's house slavery. And there's a strict dichotomy. Those who were house slaves stayed in the house. They cooked, they cleaned, they tended to people's kids. And those in the fields are working in the sun. And when we have these dichotomies, right? So these women, all of these women, including Margaret Garner, were both. They were house slaves and they did everything you would imagine in the house, uh, cleaning windows, uh, cooking, keeping the kitchen clean, ironing clothes, sewing. And they also had to do the field work. So they had to tend to the crops. They had to thresh wheat. They had to uh, plant the crops and make sure that, you know, the bugs weren't eating the crops. Can you imagine that, Katrina? Can you imagine house and field work combined? And then on top of that, okay, nonstop around the clock work. And then you don't have a community because you're one of five or one of three enslaved people that your enslaver owns. So the community is just you and maybe one or two other people. So Nellie and her daughter and her grandchildren were enslaved to a man who would shoot on the sidewalk if he heard a noise at night or a shoot on the ground, I'm sorry. And so imagine the sense of terror that they must have felt to know that if they ever tried to sneak off of his farm in Virginia, rural Virginia, then they could possibly be be shot. And so, you know, they they worked in the home, in in the fields, and did the crops. They had no sense of uh, community outside of each other, and they were not allowed to leave his farm. And then he was denying them um, their hot their the one time of the year where enslaved people got a break, it was Christmas season, and he was telling them they were going to work through it. And so they just found that to be an injustice, you know, because they understood how isolated and how unrelenting he was. And they didn't think he was a good man, which they spoke about in their um, testimony, in their, um, you know, the, the, the court inquest records. And so, so I think that it's important for the readers of the book and the listeners of, of this podcast to understand that we would be remiss, we would be mistaken and foolish to think of slavery as being house slaves, field slaves, house slaves have a good time, field slaves have a bad time. Because imagine a world where you have to do all of the above and you're doing it under extreme duress with a a terrorist um, who doesn't even think that you deserve to walk off of his farm. 
and who is using a gun to shoot at the sidewalk if you ever tried. And so that that's really the world we're, um, you know, living or they were living in. And so that's the world that we have to consider as a historian and as readers of history, like how bad it was to be, you know, enslaved to somebody and assigned to the house. <laughs> that 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 was bad too. That I know, and that's so important because you do have this, you know, idea, and most students have this idea in their mind. Our listeners have this idea in their mind. Yeah, if you're a house slave, things aren't that bad for you. But you have completely toppled that because it is just as bad as what they experienced as field laborers. There's no way to sugarcoat that and to have an actual enslaved owner going out there and shooting a gun if you even walk the threat of that that's in your mind that's going to stick with you i mean the trauma of that is going to live in your mind and you know not enough has been given to this idea that this was a traumatic experience for these women you know it's it's there every day every night every hour there was no relief for them and what they had to go what they had to go through. And I haven't even really mentioned today, but I mentioned it at least one of the, the, the case studies, the, the sexual component as well. It, it's, it's ever present. And so in addition to all of that that we just discussed, there's also that. And so, you know, in no way should anybody leave this book or this podcast thinking that, oh, it was a little bit better in, in the house for, for enslaved women. Um, if they were assigned to the house, then they, they just, they got to eat more food. In fact, the story of Nellie and company, her family, three generations, show that they, they were starving, that they were starving. And so, like, it, it's so many levels of trauma. That it was. And these aren't, you know, the wealthy, you know, Southern plantation owners that you think of with Gone with the Wind, where everything, you know, is, no, this is not. This is actually, that is actually for most atypical. This, what you have discussed, is the more typical experience for enslaved members, especially because you're going across regions here and across time periods. You're not in the cotton south. Um, and even that, even that, saying that the norm of Gone with the Wind, living up, that's even outside of that. That even wasn't the norm. This, what you are discussing, the slave owners that you discuss, though that is more of the norm of what most enslaved members experienced. Um, and for Black women, it was a trauma that could that is beyond the imagination, the scope of what they endured um, daily is, it's haunting. I mean, it's so disturbing when you think about what they had to endure and what they had to go through. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I loved in your book that you talked about was that bringing one slave hunter to justice, just bringing one help to dis slavery. Can you talk about that powerful statement? <laughs> yes, uh, because we have to wonder what the net impact of these women's actions, their use of lethal force was. And, 
you know, again, it would be a very huge uh, error for us to conclude, well, that's just one, they didn't end slavery, so therefore, net effect, zero. The, the, the fact is that uh, when we're reading historical records, most of us have seen in the process of that research that uh, enslavers, what they really fretted about to the level of paranoia was somebody murdering them in their sleep or axing them to death as they slept or, or, or poisoning them in their food. And they worried about that to the point of paranoia. And so what this shows, their paranoia was based on real stuff. <laughs> it had happened at some point during the history of slavery to somebody real. And that word got, you know, it, it traveled. So the reality is that when one woman, one enslaved woman used lethal force successfully, then the other enslaved people in her household, in her neighborhood, in her state or colony, they all understood the implications. All the enslaved people understood. In fact, Katrina, Phoebe and Phyllis in chapter one had a, a prior um, example and a successful example in their own neighborhood that they knew about. And so it kind of inspired them to, you know, others to do more or to do the same. And it also increased white paranoia. So in that way, yes, it definitely had a reverberating impact on all communities, the white and the enslaved community. And so in that way, I said, okay, these women have definitely shaken the foundations of slavery in ways that we never would have previously considered. That you did. And I mean, it was so masterfully done. And I'm also thinking about, you know, on a personal level, the case with Maria um, Daltrey, there was never another slave that came. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it was one and done. One right. and done. Right. Definitely. She she got that slavery uh, bug out of that and out of the uh enslavers forever. Uh literally yeah. And so they never tried again, which is what we all needed, you know? And so I agree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I definitely agree. So I want to ask you, what do you want readers to take away from the book? All the things we talked about today, Katrina. And I'm also hoping for somebody somewhere to be listening and decide to, to you know, explore this on a deeper level, um, either in a state or a colony or, you know, at the national level, because this is just an example of how we can begin to do the work okay so it's not exhaustive it's not you know every case where it happens in or where it appears in the record is just an example of how we might begin to do the work but the larger message which i was hoping would resonate um considering the climate that we're living in is this because we've heard more modern stories of uh Black women who have killed or almost killed their traffickers. 
and um and and they're and they unfortunately they have so much in common with the women who went on trial in my book and i said well wait a minute what does this say about the american judicial system that a woman living today katrina could meet the same pitfalls for resisting trafficking as a woman in the colonial era because our judicial system is problematic as it relates to black and brown people. Our judicial system still has many of the same traps. And I won't say them here, you'll look at it in the book and people will be able to make the connections and it's the obvious connection to the present. And so, um, yeah, I think my next work um, is to try to unpack that a little bit more, the judicial system and how it the judicial system that we're using today is built on you know a, a flawed judicial system that was built in the colonial stages carried over from britain yes i'll give you that but it has persisted including um you know having judges that are not uh or maybe they're downright hostile to black women and black men and, and people of color in general, but especially to black people. And so, so that's, that's the takeaway. It just makes you sit and wonder. And I talk about this uh, more at length in the, in the epilogue, I think. And so um, that's the message. Dr. Taylor, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's truly been a pleasure. And it's hard, you know, saying, I keep saying Dr. Taylor when I mean to say Nikki, but that's just the formal. Uh, that comes from a Southern upbringing, and I think my listeners will understand that. Um, but it has really been a pleasure talking to you today, Nikki, about this seminal book that you have created. Um, so thank you for joining me. Well, I just want to say it's been an honor talking to you. And, you know, your, your compliments have really touched me in my core, in my heart. So I really appreciate your feedback. Uh, it means the world to me, especially because you're the next generation. And I, I just I, I just really needed to hear that. And so I thank you. I thank your listeners. And I hope at least a few of them will, will get a copy of the book. There's an audio version if you need. And I'd like to thank Cambridge for believing in this vision. I would like to thank Cambridge, too. So readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Brooding Over Bloody Revenge. I assure you it is a page turner from start to finish. Yes, this is a very serious topic that Nikki has done, but there are moments in there. There's gruesome, you know, for those who are into crime, for those who are also into, but there are some lighthearted moments because as you listen to all and read about all the antics of Rose Butler, you cannot help but smile to yourself as I did. I mean, <laughs> Nikki is such an amazing scholar that this work is one that has to be read. And as she mentioned, there's also an audio version of this because I know many listeners, they enjoy books on tape. So I implore you, please go out and pick up a copy of this book. You will not regret it. You will be drawn in and you will not be able to put it down as I was. Thank you again, listeners. Have a great day.